0: What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to GiftedPerformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Welcome back, another episode of the GPP, the Gifted Performance Podcast, where we give you the information and practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. You like that? Putting the G all up in your PP. I am here with my three favorites. You've heard of Triple B, Big, Black, and Beautiful, but you've never heard of Quadruple B, which is the bodybuilding bash brothers, and I have all three of them right in front of me today. I've got Paul Serafini, Mr. Devil, Paul Serafini for the day. Trap Lord, how you doing? I'm doing great today. Fabulous, even. I've got Cameron Cheek, who always has the strangest posture in the world when he records podcasts. Apparently, it's comfortable to... Sit like this. He sits Damn like fat, a fat kid who's trying to like hide his tits through his shirt. Like I just let his <laughs> let his gut hold him up. <laughs> and Dominic Kuzo, looking fresh in the new sweater, sir. Where do you record from in your house? I've always wondered what that room is. This is my desk. That's her makeup vanity. <laughs> ah, okay, That's makes Definitely sense. Dom's makeup vanity. Look at this guy. Those are rosy cheeks. All right. Today's episode, we've got a coaches Q and a it's been a minute and a half since we've done one of those. So we have fielded some questions from the audience and we'll be answering those today. We're gonna be answering them in no particular order. I'm just gonna run straight down the list. So the first one that I got, and it's a pretty common question that I see from people, but I usually see it asked a little differently. So at Baylow Fit, can I? I'm sorry, dude. I just I
1: saw something like 30 seconds ago. Like it, it really disturbs me that your coffee
0: cup serves as like a glory hole as well. Like it's nice and warm. <laughs> what the fuck? Damn. Grower <laughs> or a show?
2: you on YouTube?
0: I think we're already not approved for children. So it is what it is. All right. So the first question from our boy at Baylow fit, I'm sorry that I said your Instagram name and then cam started finger blasting his coffee cup. That has nothing to do with you, dude. And you know, we have all the respect in the world for you. Um, First question. And it's an interesting one. Uh, Do you prefer, do you prefer chicken breast or protein powder? Or is it situational? So Let's let me let me kind of reframe the question before I throw it to you guys. Do you prefer? We'll throw out the do you prefer? Because that's like what do you like to eat? Or what what tastes better to you? What do you think is better in a hypertrophy or a recovery from training aspect standpoint con, context? Chicken breast or protein powder? Little, Who wants to run with it? I don't mind kicking it off, man.
1: So when you when you phrase the question like that. Like, what's better from a recovery aspect? Probably on paper, like, it'd be really easy to make that decision and say, wait, you know, there's higher leucine content, it's rapidly absorbed. But I mean, at least intuitively but probably that doesn't matter how rapidly the protein gets in because we know it's not like an immediate need to get those like amino acids. in. as long as they're sort of in within that recovery block of whatever it is, 12, 24, 36, 72 hours. You know what I mean? I think there is some research showing that delaying protein feeding for like six hours post-workout probably isn't a good thing. Um, but, You know, ultimately, probably doesn't matter as long as you're getting like a large enough bolus of animal protein of some kind or like the, you know, whether it's, you know, chicken, salmon, beef, whatever, eggs, milk, enough, even plant protein is probably okay um, If you're getting the spectrum of amino acids or whatever the fuck. Um, But I, I, you know, ultimately, it's situational. Like Whey's a great convenience food, but me personally, I prefer to eat some sort of—I I, I like meat and rice. Like It's good. It's filling. I'm a fat boy. Um, I will 99% of the time, post-workout or any other time of the day, choose some sort
2: of meat and rice over Whey. I'm I'm whole foods kind of guy. i rather eat chicken than uh, Whey. I feel like with way too it's hard to really trust what's on the label sometimes. I don't know how accurate like this 20 grams of protein per 30 grams of scoop is on some of these.
1: Um, we've seen it, man.
2: We've, we've seen, seen like bad yeah. testing done where they yeah. come back and they're like half the amount of protein they claim to be. But um I rather eat whole food. That's just my preference if we're talking about preference.
0: Cam, any
2: input? Uh, It, it kind
0: of
3: depends on where I'm at. Uh, I guess in the season or pushing food. Uh, because I'm at the point now where I've just gotten to the point of hating uh, chicken breast. So I'll usually eat chicken thighs, but post workout, I'm usually going with whey or something easier to get down. I now mean, I've seen. I, I need I've my
1: seen. can of green beans, oh, my God. fucking chicken salmon dude let's two hundred grams of rice maybe dump some olive oil on that motherfucker like a gram of sodium dude
3: that that's that's the good shit right now my post-workout meal is like frosted rice crispy cereal honey fair life milk and whey
2: (laughs) Uh, okay but 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 that's that's there's a there's a common thing here this is all surrounding white rice or sugary carbs. Part of my masters, that was one of the things I delved into was hyper insulin states mixed with the amino acids. So really between the two, as long as that insulin's high and you're pumping in those amino acids, you're gonna really absorb both just as fast.
0: I think an argument can be made that you don't even need the sugary carbs to get that insulin response if you are going with whey protein. I mean, we've seen that whey protein even gives off an insulin response, huge insulin I, response. I, I
3: really, I'd I really need to look at that data
1: a little harder. But I know that, yeah, whey and leucine and the branched chain amino acids generally do cause um, an insulin response. But it's hard for me to believe it's to the same magnitude that
3: something like a sugary carb would bring imagine if you go hypo and just eat a big bowl of chicken like
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah like maybe a scenario where you get like a spike it might be something where like leucine causes a spike but then it comes back down and you don't get that same area under the curve that you would if you were to have like a meal with actual carbohydrates in it
1: the real question i think is and, and i i don't think we can answer this because we don't have really the best uh Methodology is how anabolic is physiological the physiological insulin response and especially around training. So, because
2: I I believe that it's common knowledge with logical response insulin, I mean, clearly, because it it adds to tissue, you know
1: what I mean? Like, it, it puts glucose and shit into muscle cells. So by definition, it's anabolic, but I think like when it comes to like, uh, when we're talking about protein, net protein balance is generally accepted that insulin within the physiological range more serves to decrease protein breakdown, but we don't even have really good methodology for measuring protein breakdown. So how beneficial is that, you know, probably somewhat beneficial, but probably also like most things within the physiological
0: range very hard to notice or measure over time right so yeah let me take the whey question a little bit further because i've seen this asked in lyle's group a bunch of times and just on instagram social media quite a bit is there any downside to consuming all of your protein from whey protein shakes people seem to to I want to ask that question all the time. Am I losing out on anything if I only get protein from whey protein shakes or casein, whatever?
2: I mean, I think no. If the if the amino acid profile is the same, it's pretty much the if it's complete and you're just getting that in all day, my stomach would be destroyed if I did that. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it would be that big of a difference. I uh, Do you want
1: to go ahead and answer, Cam? I know I'm a Mike Hogg. Aww. Same page with Dom. I will I'll say there there's this neuroticism, a neuroses or whatever, you know, like just the type of person I am, you know, and, and that that little bodybuilder inside my head that's just like that that can't be okay. Like, you know, like you, you gotta eat some real fucking food, you know, like like, like people did before whey was like a fucking thing, you know, but I ultimately I think on paper and I've seen – I've actually seen people. Now, granted, these people had good genetics and they were also enhanced. But I've actually seen people live off of essential amino acids and like carbs and veggies and they fucking are jacked or were at that time. They were really fucking strong. They looked really good. So that would lead me to believe that probably way you're going to make it.
0: Yeah, I I think that what we can all agree on is that that if you're a person who gets all of your protein from whey protein shakes, you're a real piece of shit. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) you're a bad human. So Balo Fit, if that's you, check yourself, man. Let's get it together. (laughs) Your mom and dad, they're a little disappointed. Put the whey down. It is a gateway drug. (laughs) You'll be using them trend baloney's before you know it. All right, next question. It comes from AV underscore Montoya underscore. A lot of underscores. Um, maybe, maybe dial it back a little bit. Um, the question here from Mr. Montoya, I'm going to assume that's his or her last name. What would be the peaking slash loading process for a classic physique competitor who had to cut hard to make weight? So let me let me set this and kind of define some strict constraints so that you guys can answer more accurately. Let's say we define because cut hard can mean a lot of things. Some people think, oh, I cut three pounds and that was really hard. And the people are like anything under 15 pounds and it's not that hard of a cut. So let's assume this is an individual uh, who has lost roughly six to eight percent of their body weight over. So for a 200-pound male, this is someone who lost 12 to 16 pounds over a seven-day time frame to make weight.
1: I, I want to add a little thing to that, that cut hard definition, too, because, like, sometimes people look at raw numbers, like Albert, what Alberto Nunez diet's on, and they're like, oh, he, that's not hard. He's eating 3,000 calories most of his diet. It's like the dude is fucking shredded, lost like 30 fucking pounds. That was a hard diet. You know what I mean?
0: Anyways, go on. That, that's kind of sidetracked. All right. So, so let's, let's kind of start with our, our resident peaking expert, Mr. Cameron. for someone. And this is something that you've had to do recently. Um, a classic physique competitor who had to cut hard to make weight. What is the peaking slash loading process to bring them back to life?
3: Uh, so essentially, you know, you, you're going to establish baseline water and electrolyte levels a few weeks prior to peak week even happening. Um, I want to say with him, he cut, 12 pounds down from like 202 to 190. So a little bit under your parameters. But what I did with him, um, I want to say that I raised his water and sodium 50% above normal at the start of peak week. Um, two days into that, so at five, four or five days out, I then dialed his sodium, I pulled it down to one and a half grams and left his water up high. Um, at that point we were down about six and still had about six more pounds to go. Um, and we were two days out from weigh-ins, um, and credit to you too, Ryan, because you kind of helped teach me this process as well. Um, but at one day out from weigh-ins, uh, I then moved all of his solid meals to liquid. So, uh, fit, he was drinking whey shakes, um, pretty much for all of his meals, just weigh in water. Hey, shout
0: out Bay low. That's our boy.
3: Pull, pulled out his veggies as well. Um, so his fiber was basically trace at that point. Um, and then on uh day of weigh-ins, he was about two pounds over at that point. Uh, weigh-ins were at like 5 PM. So he didn't eat or drink anything during that day. Uh, about an hour out from weigh-ins he was still about a pound and a half over so put him in the bathroom with uh sweatpants hoodie cut the shower on all the way blocked off uh the air blocked off the doors and the, the holes in the bottom of the door so the steam and heat couldn't couldn't travel out um and he ended up making weight and then as soon as he did make weight uh Immediately, just hydrated him out of the gate uh, with liquid carbs, um, Pedialyte, water, Gatorade, and I think like a honey mixture. Um, I think his first two meals, I went with just straight liquid uh, nutrients, and then from there started reintroducing
0: uh, solids. Dom. You want to talk about any of the kind of the underlying science there? Why with the wet water regulation and whatnot? Uh,
2: yeah. Well, one thing too, I like to consider sometimes when these guys have to cut so hard, um, depending on when they do this cut, like Cam, uh I think it was Brandon, like 12 days out or something. He started. But uh, I think when somebody's dieting on low carbs for so long, it's kind of hard to carve them up really heavy. Like if they're used to like, I don't know, sub a hundred grams or a hundred grams, if they're a bigger dude, um, pushing like that eight, 900 gram carb up, sometimes it doesn't just, it doesn't end up well, just because their body for so long was just so used to lower carbs. Um, That's why like me personally, I like to fat load in the middle of the week on peak week and then bring carbs back in really heavy two days out. And then the day before the show dial back the carbs, bring the fats back up and just kind of hold the look all day on a one day out. Uh, just, I noticed that like, they don't have, you know, GI issues. They absorb the carbs a lot better. I just feel like internally, if they're so used to low carbs, their insulin response has been really low for a long period of time. And then all of a sudden you hit them really hard with all of that. They might not just be responsive internally to that. You know, they might overshoot insulin just because they haven't had it. They end up going hypo and just things like that. I mean, there's times like where I've told Paul, like I've eaten. And then like, I go hypo out of nowhere. And I think that's just like that over insulin response that is just internal because i'm so used to eating lower carbs at the time or whatever it is um but that's why i really like using fat loads uh like early on in the week it makes carving up a lot easier because you know you're filling back up like intramuscular triglycerides and you know things that we don't really think about all the time to give like that true fullness to the muscle
3: i uh, think- well I was going back on uh, kind of what Dom was saying. But I mean, I will say, with somebody that does have to make weight, you know, if they're dieting on super low carbs, um, it, it can be tough to fill someone back out, especially when the night before. Um, just because that food is only going to get in so quick and you're only going to get so much opportunity to get food in within, you know, 12 hours or whatever it may be. But if that person has been dieting on super low food, which if they're trying to make weight, they're more than likely going to be at at low food going into it. Um, So, you know, I don't think that getting the food in is more so the issue versus making sure that the athlete is getting hydrated and getting the electrolytes, proper fluids and everything back in before the food is coming in so it can be properly reabsorbed yeah i think also just to note on add add to that and then
1: something uh what don was talking about because your your most rapid tool when it comes to adjusting look is going to be fluid and electrolytes versus the food that takes several hours to not only like get through the gi but then be um you know like for carbs to be added to muscle glycogen and stuff like that, try uh, fats be added to um trigly- intramuscular triglyceride stores, all that stuff. Like that shit takes time. Um, and then going back to what Dom said, I think to just to make it make sense conceptually, you know, uh, having those fat loading periods because we already know, just like the a normal person, right? Like when you give them carbs, we we already lose about a quarter, uh, 25 ish percent of that just through like heat. It's just an inefficient. You know what I mean? So having that sort of fat there as well to kind of buffer that and like almost maybe in some ways spare some of those carbs, I think, is uh, part of that process. And then uh, not only that and something I don't want to get too deep into, like. A lot of the clients that we coach are have certain aspects of their supplementation going into their show that are already going to make them sort of better at using carbs, more likely to go hypo, um, and just end up with a flat look if if something if other things aren't considered outside of just carb intake. Yeah,
3: I think electrolytes are a huge overlooked thing when really too, like if you have someone's electrolytes and water dialed in, you can send them on stage flat. And they're still going to look damn good. <laughs> like, you know, I, I think and I, I've come to learn too, and I still have a lot of learning to do. I could be wrong, but I, I don't find as much of an issue with pushing food super hard as to not having the electrolytes dialed into where they need to be. The only time that I've pushed food hard and really seen like a negative impact is someone's gut being bloated. <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: I want to add also one thing too, uh, that I, we haven't hit yet. I, I think what's huge too, outside of the, thing I noticed within myself when we were peaking is, uh, total movement and activity throughout the loading process is that I, I, and just, I noticed this throughout dieting as well. I could have a very low calorie day and if I sat my ass at this computer and I got 4,000 or less steps, I finished the day like kind of looking at myself, like I'm decently full, you know, like I, I'm not as flat as I normally am. And then same thing throughout the loading process, the the day I looked the best was when I sat in a car for for ten hours and didn't move. That's when I was the most full, the most tight, um, less wa- least watery.
2: That's why I always look good. I don't move.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I was sitting. I was at a show I think in twenty seventeen. I was sitting next to a guy's coach, and we were just kind of shooting the shit about his competitor, and he's talking about how. He had a competitor who was trying to make weight for Classic. They had to cut him really, really hard. He ended up not even making it because he had to cut so hard. and then they talking just talking about kind of how he loaded them up after that hard cut and he was talking about how he did something similar to what cam did immediately after weigh-ins even though they missed he was like all right let's get hydrated hit the pd light the gatorade um hit some of that honey some of those um really easy to digest carbohydrates and then what he actually had his client do was go and get a training session in so he did about you know about 15 16 sets of upper body just pump stuff and he said and it was kind of to Dom's point of his argument was if we can get that training in, we can bump up insulin sensitivity. And then after the training session, what can happen is his body will be more sensitive to carbohydrates. And then he had his client do the exact same thing after pre-judging before the night show, after pre-judging, he went and got a lift in and then carved up hard for the night show. And the guy was super, super lean. So he looked phenomenal. So I don't know how much of that, do you think that's a good strategy? Is that a viable strategy? I've actually... I think,
2: I think the training But you've got to be careful with inflammation on that. You know, what threshold is that person going to hit that's like, okay, now I'm just inflamed. And, like, I'm not going to have the separation that I should have been having. You know, just like us after a hard leg day, if we pose the next day, we're not as deep detailed and things like that. So, like, where is that line... I guess you have to kind of know the client like really well when it comes to inflammation response on their training. Um, like, you know, you could see that as an issue. One thing I do is two days out, I still have them do their cardio, but I just dial back the intensity of it just so that they're still moving. And that's their highest load day. So like, I have a guy competing Saturday, um, and today's Thursday. We're doing like 850 grams of carbs, but I still have him do his cardio today just so that activity is a little higher. And then he's going to leave. You're going to have some of that like training carryover throughout the day now.
3: I'll actually say that. uh, The biggest concern that I have with an athlete training two days out, one day out isn't losing the lines. It's more so you know, this is going to make it so much harder to fill back out. Um, because I've had, I used to have athletes not train the last two days leading into a show, but I've started to learn that I like how it can help with some of the glycogen, uh, reabsorption following the training. Um, but you've, you've just got to be careful with how hard you do go because it can push that flatness versus really worrying about the inflammation. Like I don't think anybody's going to be training or going to even be able to train hard enough at one day out that they're going to have to worry about losing lines unless they're going in and doing squats. So I I almost actually disagree with that because I, I found like
1: the, when you're like a week out and you walk into the gym, you have that, feeling of like I, I want to do everything I don't want to train light like I want to go in here and I want to get the sick as fuck I, I want to train hard so like I, I pulled back because you know I, I know that's the wise thing to do and the instruction given to me but like that that last upper body session everything in me was like man I want to go hard as fuck today you know what I mean like, and I think like with somebody with an athlete mindset, most often pulling back is almost like the hard thing
3: to do. Well, I mean, even with, uh, with Jarek, because I had him do at, at two days out, he had a full upper day, but he had that photo shoot with Will Whitman one day out. So we just basically had two full upper days back to back. And the only issue that I ran into with him was, you know, we we're, we're having to pick up how much food we're pumping in at one day out now because of that that upper body day it wasn't you know a losing lines issue with doing that and inflammation it was just like oh well we just drove that car another 20 miles we got to put 20 more miles of gas back in the car for sure and i think to go with ryan's uh original question that we
1: sort of uh detracted from the training throughout the day um I'm sort of with Dom on that in terms of just being careful about because I think we've seen this too or maybe even had clients experience it or seen somebody else backstage going through it. It's a pump too, pump. They go way too hard into their fucking pump.
2: Yeah, and, and they lose. They lose a lot of detail.
1: Yeah. And, and then, that's just for pants. <laughs> and and the, uh, a lot of times, it, you're, it, it's people too that are like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing bodybuilding right now for fun. But right after this, I'm going to do classic physique. And that's the one I really care about. And I'm like, why the fuck are you going so hard in your pump right now,
0: man? Oh. Like, <laughs> All right. AV Montoya, do you feel like we answered your question? Because we did. You are welcome, sir. We Thanks did. for coming by. Our next question comes from Dom's client. Her name is Ashley. Her last name starts with a D. And then there are a bunch of other letters, and they're in a very strange order, and I'm not even going to try. So, Ashley D., here we go. So, Ashley asks, what is your favorite part of coaching? And then a secondary question of what is your biggest pet peeve? So, who wants to start with their favorite part of coaching? It's the money, man. It's the money. (laughs) (laughs) No.
3: No, it's not the money. Um, Favorite part of coaching? Uh, I would have to say, honestly, the continual learning uh, aspect, like I know with me, um, when it comes to preps, peaking people, like the amount of knowledge that you learn within those last 48 hours, 72 hours going into a show, like it's almost exponential compared to a textbook or on paper. Um, so I, I would say it has to be just the continual like knowledge that you learn through experience, but also the reward that you get and chemistry that you build working with athletes and working with good, genuine people. Um, you know, the second part of the question, there's a pet peeve there. <laughs> we'll get to that. But the good side to it is working with good people. Um, you know, I grew up playing sports, playing football. So there was always like a camaraderie there. Um, So that reward of working with somebody um, and having that duo role of the coach and athlete, uh, I think that's my favorite part. Um, But Paul, Paul, what you got? What's your favorite part? I'd just say gratification in almost any form
1: or like any aspect of it. So whether that's a success, whether it's feeling like you learned a new skill um, becoming better at working with people, communicating with people. Um, just, I mean, any, it it all feels good, man. you know, so I, I just say any form of gratification throughout every aspect of whatever we do, um, making people huge, man feels good. Uh, yeah, that's about all I got to say on that.
0: Yeah. No, no pet peeves, Paul? What? No pet peeves? Oh, you got pet peeves second? Paul? Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, Dom, Dom, Dom. Continue. Let's
2: swing
3: back
0: around to the pet peeves <laughs>
2: because we're going to get some. <laughs> um, I think it's all, it, my favorite part is like all the different kind of people I work with, uh, you know, reaching multiple different kind of goals with different people. Um, <sighs> I like that. I love how much I learned from all this I mean, you can only learn so much in school. So like, you know, working with you guys now and stuff like that, I've learned a lot. And then like, even just working with so many different types of clients, because I work with a wide variety of people and like, I learned something different about each and every single one of them. So that, that's also cool. Um, and then I just, all the people I've met all the now and stuff, That that's definitely something I love about coaching.
0: Absolutely. Like, I think cool. my I think my favorite part and my pet peeve are like one and the same. It was like when I was growing up, I had like a very close, like knit group of friends. I had like five or six friends that like they were my only friends. And I used to see these other people and they had like a million friends. They had like dozens and dozens of friends. And so I feel like a lot of the relationship part of it is my favorite part like i feel like i have like 60 70 people now that text me on a daily basis that i that i would consider my friends The pet peeve is the exact same. Jesus Christ, you motherfuckers, don't stop texting me. I used to look at people in like high school and college and their phone would be blowing up all day. I'm like, damn, that's so cool. It must be so cool to have people like blowing up your phone all day. And now I'm that guy and holy shit, does it suck. Clients, reminder, 7 a.m. to 8 p.m., I'm all yours. Past 8 p.m. before 7 a.m., you California, Colorado motherfuckers, you got to keep your text to yourself or don't expect a response until the morning. So my pet peeve is recording a podcast and after 45 minutes being done, having 37 text messages and 17 emails to respond to.
2: Cam, what's your pet
0: peeve?
3: The, the people where you ask a, a question, whether it just be a yes or no, and all of a sudden I figured out how they just spent the last four hours of their morning when it's just like, hey, man, I, I just needed to know what your hunger was like. I didn't need to know how you just spent your wake up to somehow you're getting your nails done. You know, you had a tough time getting there. There was a lot of traffic. And now you're back home, and you're really
0: struggling. I, I just need to know if you're hungry or not, man. <laughs> Paul, no one cares that you got your nails done. Cam just wants to know if you're hungry or not. I know, right? Is it my Paul, turn? You're up. actually no. I think Paul's going to diatribe here, so Dom, let's have you hop in for a pet peeve oh, before man. Paul before we lose uh, track of everything.
2: My Please. biggest pet peeve is. If you're working with me, you're working with me. No, nobody else. Like, don't tell me that this guy at the gym told you to do this and try that. And, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. Well, look, bro, you paid me. You're working with me. And that's just, that's it. That's how it's going to go.
3: I don't even have a biggest pet peeve. I just have a lot of them. And that that's that's up there, too. But I think it, it falls in line with the instant gratification, people. <laughs> It's just like, hey, man, like, just do what we need to do. And yeah. six months from now, we'll find out if it's a good idea or a bad idea. <laughs> but yeah. there's, there's only one way to find out, and you're going to have to do it.
1: <laughs> so uh, I hate everything. Not I can't, can't <laughs> fucking stole mine. I got a lot of them. But um, my, my over-explainers, dude, I just – they. I'm on the phone, dude, and I'm just like doing this, or the phone's on mute, and I'm like, "What the? Like, Cam's next to me, and I'm I'm just screaming into the phone. Just fucking say it, like, (laughs) asshole, like, dude, (laughs) man, oh fucking man, dude. Like, it's it's almost an insult to like your intelligence, right? Like. we're all smart cookies here, man. We can put the puzzle pieces together i don't I don't need you to break down the story into like eight different steps of how we got here. Just tell me where we are and let let me put the pieces together and figure the situation out. This doesn't need to be an hour phone call like that's my
0: thing dude the uh the just absolutely maddening like uh, you know when I squat and And I get a little pain when I'm at, like, 10 degrees of internal hip rotation. (laughs) But when I, you know, angle my toes out to about, like, like you don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. Like, bro, does it it hurt me me.
2: Yes or no.
3: (laughs) Yes. Holy shit. Another one for for me, too, is just, like, kind of how you were saying, Ryan. Like, all, all those little details. And, like, honestly, a biggest pet peeve for me is some of these coaches out here, man. Like... You put so much emphasis on so little tiny things, and you've got great effort at putting it there. But put it in the shit that matters, man. Like, I applaud your efforts and and all, all this that you're putting in. But, man, you don't need so much effort on how you put the mayonnaise and the ketchup and mustard on the sandwich if you can't even put the meat and the cheese on there.
0: Side to side. Side-to-side side, diagonals only for mustard. Mayonnaise, you got to go up and down. But, man, it's not even going to be good if you don't even have the issue. X in the, in the box. Maybe some
3: swirlies. <clears throat> oh, they'll, it'll, they'll, they'll paint Picasso on that sandwich. But it, you're basically just going to eat a ketchup sandwich.
0: <laughs> I feel like that's some cam shit. All right, Ashley. Now you know. Dom likes about you, and you know what Dom hates about you. So the things that he hates about you, maybe work on them. The things that he likes about you, keep it going, girlfriend. All right, our next one and our last one, the one that will play us out today, is from JC underscore future fit physician. JC, good luck with your goals of being a physician and fit in the future. Hopefully. Hopefully one day you can pull that future out and you're just strictly JC fit physician. Honestly, reserve that Instagram tag right now because someone might try and come in and steal it from you. Uh, JC, he asks, when should a deload week be utilized? And these greedy motherfuckers, it's another two-part question. Are they as important for enhanced athletes? So when should it? We'll start with when should a deload week be utilized? Can I kick this one? <laughs> Kick it. This one is so I, I think there's
1: a difference between in my opinion um when you eat a D load and when you should probably take a D load, right? Like if you have multiple multiple sessions in a row where performance is on the down and down. You're looking like shit. You're feeling like shit. Sleep's fucked up. We're in a bad mood. We need like eight naps a day. Hunger's in a weird place. You're super hungry. Or you're not hungry at all. Like you probably, it, 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 you probably are at that point where you need a deload. We are moving from overreach towards overtraining. Maybe, um, you'll know. <laughs> so, but I, I personally feel that it, is not a bad idea to take a deload before you need one now not necessarily from the standpoint of your long-term progress but even stuff like injury prevention and shit like that you know not driving yourself towards psychological burnout all of those like little uh you know benefits there now i also sort of believe and people think that this is a little weird coming from me that you don't uh, a standard bodybuilder right training an hour or two a day you don't ever need a deload I, I don't think you ever truly fucking need one unless you're hurt or psychologically burnout you don't need one your body will sort of force you to deload when it when it has to when it when it, when it feels it for some reason it needs to protect you or can't work at some effort level you know what i mean and that has been demonstrated like when you create a lot of muscle damage your nervous system will not allow like full activation like when you're fully rested that's like your body saying like hey we're deloading right now whether you want to or not and we've we've sort of a lot of us have probably seen that within our training blocks where performance is up we, we train our chest bench press performance is up. We have a hard session. We come back three or four days later and we can't push the numbers. We want to performance is down. We come back a few days later. Performance is way back up higher than it was that last even two sessions ago. So like we our our body got the recovery. It needed one way or another, you know, you just had a shitty session between those. Um, and then uh, to answer that second part, or should we exp- let other people expand on that first part? Real quick.
3: Well, I want to throw something in there. I uh, I want to play a little devil's advocate. And let Paul just keep doing his thing here, because you know what? We're gonna have some clients that are gonna listen to this and probably go, "Man, why you just said I don't have to deload?" Well, we but, talked about other benefits of deloading as well,
2: because and- no one
1: feeling like shit. No one likes being run down. No one likes being injured or psychologically. Um, you know, the the aspect and motivational aspects of training.
2: Tom hates himself. Yeah. No, but <laughs> I don't hate myself. <laughs> but I was like, I never deloaded I never took breaks. I never did any of that until I started working with Paul. Paul does all my training. I can say that like this last training block I'm in I don't like taking the deload approach. I just take like five days off and then train again. And, but I noticed I probably felt like at the end, I could have kept going, forcing myself to take these days off. I don't feel that psychological burn. I come back and I'm way recovered, but I feel like Paul had a really good point on it's helping me not get injured. It's helping me not get mentally burned out from the training and all those things. So I feel like cam just said it, our clients are going to be like, "Whoa, well why am I even doing this now?" I think not so much from like a performance standpoint but like mentally, injury-wise, I love taking these days off now. And then like I come back into my new training block and I just feel like I'm ready to rock. Like I smash my week once every single time. And uh, I feel like taking those breaks every 4 weeks how we do it sets that up a lot even though it's not like a true my body was so battered down to the ground i need the break it's a good like like proactive kind of break like you're 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 doing it ahead of time just so that you don't fall back behind exactly
1: i one side benefit that i want to throw out there too and uh pose a question to you dom isn't it also nice having that period of time where you're spending either no time in the gym or less time in the gym, just to focus on other shit in life.
2: Yeah. I was going to say. Like, like it gets me so ahead on work. It gets me, like, things around the house, any errands I have to run. Like, there's none of that mental stress that I'm like, I have to find time to get to the gym today. I could take my time with everything and just put a lot of quality into everything else in life aside from the gym these these days now.
3: Like there, there's nothing beats there, nothing beats a deload that falls on a peak week for one of my clients. Like especially when I'm traveling to a show, because and two, you know, you were talking about it, Dom. Like focusing on other things in life. Like at the end of the day, let's be real. Like that, there's we've coached maybe one one person I think that can actually get to be a bodybuilder, and that that be it. You know, and Them not have to have any other kind of job, source of of income, stuff like that. And people want to just be straight serious bodybuilders. And I'll be the first to say that we coach serious bodybuilders and they deload and they're totally fine. You know, like you might have a kid, you, you probably got a relationship. You should have some kind of job, like take the deload. (laughs) Learn some stuff about your body. Let Paul have a few days to even create the next training phase.
0: (laughs) And just, just do it. I think, I think deloads are a very, they're a very polarizing subject for people. And whenever there's kind of like, like that polarizing subject, there's people on opposite ends of the spectrum. There's the, you don't need a deload. You never need a deload, just keep pushing harder. And then there's the folks that are super on the side of proactive deloads that are like schedule your deload one week, every four weeks and like stick with that and do not change. And whenever there are these kind of like polarized ends of the spectrum, the truth is always right there in the middle. And that's kind of what Paul started with is like, he's not making the point that you don't need a deload at all. He's not making the point that like, if you don't deload, your body will explode. He's sitting in the middle and saying, listen, like listen to your body, understand your body. If your performance is consistently moving down session after session, why would you not deload? But on the other end of that, if your performance is improving session over session over session, but you've hit your four week period, you're like, oh, gotta deload now. Would you, when there's pot when there's the possibility that you could push that a little bit further? Yeah. Or, and I feel you know, uh, the aspect uh, of, of those other benefits,
1: like you may just deload anyway, you know? Deload.
2: Yeah. And I feel like uh, me and Paul do some cool stuff with my training too, like like kind of like auto-regulate on feel. Like if I'm just smashing a session, like he'll be like okay, take another set to RIR this week. If you're not, and if I hit like RIR too soon in a, like a a movement, I just stop there. And I don't do like the next set that he has listed. And, you know, which of course, like a lot of things go into that hydration, food, sleep, all that. But just, I feel like that that's another really cool thing is like, again, going based on how your body feels in some of these sessions, like, my body might not you know might be forcing me to deload a little early because you know prior sessions were super intense that when I came in this day, like I could only do seventy five percent of the workload, not a hundred percent.
1: I think that's yeah, that's always really fun. Um, I think that's sort of the perk with working with a coach uh that has experience and you know is very good at sort of sensing their own biofeedback or just recognizing things in training and being able to pull back or push forward when needed um unfortunately through client volume and then not being able to necessarily trust a lot of clients like that process doesn't get to be used as widely as it probably should be used and, when
3: doing well, client training and two, there's not as many people too who have had enough practice with it be- because i mean even myself like i've been working with you paul for i think almost three years next spring and two even for me like there's phases and we so- where still with rir stuff i'm like Damn man, like on paper, like this shows that probably I, I still need to keep focusing and making sure, like, was that really three or was that really two? Like, from because what I understand with fatigue accumulation and stuff like that, I can see on paper, and we see it even with clients, like, I know for a fact that wasn't R I R. Or I know for a fact you could have done more. You could have done this. And it there's still, it just takes a lot of practice and a lot of, you know, focus that can be tough with, you know, counting your reps, counting your tempo, also knowing where you're at, you know, relative to, to finish set. And it can, it could be tough. With- I think it's tough for individuals
1: that are very like, uh, I, I can't think of a good term for it, but hard number focused where like they see three RIR and they're like, I need to be at three RIR. Right. But like, no, really like conceptually and qual- like qualitatively, like I'm just asking that the set is pretty hard, but it's not. A grinder or to failure and that it just started getting hard that the bar is not really slow you know what i mean like and then when we see like one rir i'm asking for you to be pretty close to failure or you know what i mean for that bar to be really slow and for you to finish that set and say man that was
3: fucking hard you know <laughs> just start putting on client sheets where they can highlight as green yellow red <laughs> Yeah, I mean, seriously, there there
1: are some coaches that use a three-number system, one, two, or three, you know, how hard you just rate it, how hard was it,
0: you know? Yeah, I think I've seen some templates that actually work that way, where you rate the session difficulty or the exercise difficulty, zero, one, negative one, and then it auto-regulates the following session based off of that previous hashtag AI. <laughs> um, but I have seen – so – let me know if you guys have seen this too, and we'll kind of close out on this. I have seen somewhat of a paradigm shift as people have started preaching lower volume training approaches. They've also shifted over to more of a auto-regulated or a reactive deload structure than in the past. And what I saw in the past was people predict or people programming ridiculous volumes, so 30 to 40 sets per body part, and saying you have to deload at this point. Like you have to deload when you hit that fourth week. And now as people have kind of shifted the volume back and kind of re-arrived at that 10 to 20 sets per body part per week, they're saying, oh, you know what? Maybe we can actually extend out the mesocycle volume to five, six, seven, eight weeks before we actually need a deload. So I wonder if there's somewhat of a relation, I suspect there is somewhat of a relationship there. It's gotta be
1: because we know that or I don't want to say we know, generally accepted that volume is a greater contributor to fatigue than um, maybe your effort or your loading or intensity, right? Which makes sense. You do more, you are more tired, Like um, so but we also and and I I found myself backing off on volume like we were talking about this the other day. The volumes we used to give fucking people like we wouldn't give that to people these days and we wouldn't do it ourselves anymore. Um, And, you know, I, I made a big rant on this on Instagram the other day, like more isn't always more. Like sometimes more just gets you better at doing more and you don't get more results or what you're necessarily looking for and uh that's something i've noticed is that um pulling back a little bit on volume people are, are getting just as good of a training response sometimes even better and even if it's just as good if you can get just as good a response do less be
3: less fatigued like that's a fucking win um i want if there's a lot of uh psychological factor that goes into there where people know that they're focusing more on quality versus quantity. Oh, absolutely, man. If I only
1: have two or three sets of movement, I'm not bullshitting those two or three sets of movement because I only have two or three opportunities to have a good fucking uh, training session stimulus and feel like I fucking put the work in. If every fucking movement I have has like five sets, like there is a higher chance that I'm going to have sessions where I I take eight minute rests between fucking sets because I'm fucking bored. I don't want to try. I'm fucking exhausted, whatever. And then going circling back around to something that relates more to Ryan's question uh, about the relationship or whatever is, I think there's like a double edged sword there, because a lot of times when we talk about lower volumes, now we're talking about higher efforts, higher loads. Um, and so in some ways, yes, less volume, less fatigue you can train a little longer, but every session is most likely going to be a little harder. And if we're talking about heavier loads, um, although we do like to identify volume with injury, um, rates, like we've all been there where we have benched triples and fives and doubles for fucking too long and things don't feel good and it's not a fucking volume issue because our volume is ridiculously low you know what i mean
0: (laughs) when i've run into those issues in the past with taking getting injured or having little stuff pop up from going too heavy on maybe like a core movement like a bench or a squat or a deadlift it's always in my scenario been in congruence with very high volumes on other movements so for example i might do like you know five triples five heavy triples on squat and then i would go to like the leg press and i would do like five twelves and then i would do some like lunges for like four sets of 12. so i i don't know how much of it i would attribute to the actual heavy movement itself the higher volumes on the other movements or the wear and tear of the combination between the two
1: i guess part of it too would be what we consider high volume since volume can be measured in a bunch of ways i think my problem was set volume never changed back when i was training really heavy so like let's say i was doing 10 sets of pressing um during a hypertrophy phase when i went to heavier phases i was still doing 10 sets of triples or whatever Um, So I would do five triples on flat incline press, heavy as fuck. And then I would be like, all right, now we're going to do five fives on pin press right after. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, on on paper, you know, if you're doing volume based off of volume load, sets times reps times weight seems low, but set volume is still high as fuck. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think maybe maybe you could get I don't know, this data probably doesn't exist. Maybe a comparison of injury rates for those who follow a more Bulgarian style of training, super high frequency, super high intensity, but lower in terms of volume versus like a German volume training style where you would see a greater incidence of long long-term injuries. I think part of the problem with the argument
1: too is that, you know, some people Everybody has like a thing they want to cling to. Like to one person, you're like lifting heavy. That's what fucks you up. And then the next person is like, well, I think volume is more of the issue. And then another person will be like, I only get hurt when I do high frequency. And it's like all of these things can contribute to injury risk, especially if your movement patterns and warm up practices and behaviors just aren't on where they should
0: be. So fuck them all. They're all wrong. And we're the only ones that are right. Anything that you guys wanted to circle back to before we call this a day? Cam, the sun shining on you, just making you look beautiful. My <laughs> biggest pet peeve as a coach is this sun shining on me. <laughs> I'm circling around. You. Anything else? Circle back to? Revisit? Shall we say thank you to our lovely guests and be on our way? Let's do I'm it. Good. All right, Bailo. Ba- Um, Mr. or Mrs. I'm going to say Mr. Montoya, since he asked about classic physique, Mr. Montoya, Ashley D and JC. We're watching you, bro. Don't be a future fit physician, be a current fit physician. We are the quadruple B, the bodybuilding bash brothers. That's a tongue twister. We will be back for another episode. We've got plenty more questions to ask. We will see you there. In the meantime, you can find us at gifted performance. I am at the underscore Squatfather. We've got at Polyrocket, at Team kuza, and at Cameron underscore Cheek. Wow, that was a lot to go through. Always. The way. rest of you, thank, Like, comment, subscribe, the usual stuff that YouTube people say, and we will uh, catch you on the next one. Stay gifted in the meantime. We love you. Goodbye and good night. Bye. Bye.